0: Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point.
1: Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. Chinese President Xi Jinping met with visiting European Council President Charles Michel Thursday morning in Beijing. This is the first time an official meeting took place between the leaders of China and the EU institutions after the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China. Prior to the visit, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson said China attaches great importance to its relations with the EU and hopes to strengthen strategic communication and build consensus with the European side, while the European Council called the visit a timely opportunity to engage. So why is this a timely opportunity to engage? What to expect? for China-EU relations in the near future and what's at stake. I'm pleased to be joined from Rome by Michele Geraci, former Under-Secretary Under Secretary of State at the Italian Ministry of Economic Development. Also from Rome, Daniel Gross, Director of the Center for European Policy Studies, and from Beijing, Cui Hongjian, Director of the Department of European Studies at the China Institute of International Studies. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Mr. Cui, Uh, Let me go to you first. Now, this is the first visit to China by European Council President since 2018, and it comes at uh, China's invitation. What do you know is on the agenda of uh, of both sides, especially uh, on the uh, European side? And uh, right now, we don't know too much details. What uh, do you know that has been uh, discussed in the meeting?
0: First of all, I would like to uh, emphasize the uh, significance of the visit by uh, President Michel to China. Uh, Even as we know in the past uh, more than two years, uh, even both sides has some uh, uh, communication online, but it's the first time as we know the face-to-face communication. So it's uh, so important for both sides to resolve some uh, problem or challenges on both sides. Firstly. For example, how about the mutual perception issue? Also, you know, in the past uh, two or three years, uh, certainly there are more and more negative, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, perceptions from a European side on China. And also at the same time, how could uh, both two sides to promote their uh, cooperation? Of course, on the basis of uh, uh, stabilizing their uh, relations. The third is. Yes, because of the Ukrainian crisis, because of the gaming between China and the United States, there are a lot of uh, negative impact on China-EU relations. So, how could China and the EU, to uh, I mean, uh, have some more resilience to uh, deal with any kind of uh, uh, impact from other big powers' relations? I think that would be a very very important issue, of course. Uh, recently, we find out the uh, more and more communication between China and the European countries, uh, not only the uh, Chancellor uh, Schultz's uh, visited to China, and also um, President Xi's uh, meeting uh, with some uh, uh, European countries leader uh, during the G20 summit. So I think, uh, yes, this uh, visit by uh, President Michel will be a continue of this, uh, uh, I mean, go back to normal track for China-EU relations.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Gross, how um, how high is your expectation for the impact of this meeting uh, from the position that uh, Mr. Michel holds within the European uh, institutions, but also against the backdrop, as Mr. Cui just mentioned, the series of meetings that have been taking place over the past year, actually, between the high-level leaders of China and the Europeans?
2: As Professor Tui just said, uh, maintaining a dialogue, maintaining lines of communications is very important, especially when the two sides uh, have differing opinions on major issues. And that's the case right now. And uh, it's very useful uh, to have the head of the European Council uh, in Beijing, not because uh, he can take big decisions on trade issues and economic issues, but he can transmit in a certain sense uh, what many European uh, heads of state uh, think, uh, what uh, is their position towards China.
3: Uh,
2: Your president Xi Jinping had the occasion to meet uh, the leaders of the largest European countries. But in Europe, the smaller countries also count, and there are many of them. And in a sense, uh, Charles michel will also represent uh, their views. And uh, I think he will bring back also uh, to them and to the wider European audience, what is the Chinese reaction to European concerns? And that concerns, of course, now mainly or primarily uh, the the position of China towards the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine uh, where Europe to some extent is happy uh, that uh, China does not really materially help Russia, but is asking itself uh, what is the broader political position uh, which uh, China will be taking, where is it meaning? And uh, I think these are the atmospheric uh, issues, which in the long run are important because they determine a policy in more concrete issues. Which Mm -hmm. will come up later, namely economic and trade relations.
1: Michele, there is big trade going on between the two sides, and in 2021, last year actually, China is was Europe's third largest partner for exports and biggest partner for imports. So both and both imports and exports reached. 10 year high last year. Some people are calling Europe's trade with China over reliance that needs to be corrected. What is your view?
4: Uh, We need to uh, understand what we mean by reliance. Indeed, uh, China is a big trading partner for Europe, but China is not, uh, with all due respect, uh, uh, Panama. So uh, China will always be a relevant market uh, for almost all countries in the world it's if it's not the number 1 it would be number 2 number 3 so the reliance from china is uh, could be a challenge uh, but uh, it is a fact that uh, countries need to face now we always uh, for example during the visit of chancellor scholz to china some people also criticized germany for relying too much on china exporting 130 150 billion now there's two ways to reduce the reliance either you do less business with china which i don't think is a good idea or you increase the business with others so that the importance relative importance of china diminishes so uh, it, the problem that china is a big uh, player in the in economies of european country is because european countries do not succeed in expanding the market beyond the European Union and the United States so the traditionally let's say western countries where we have affinity of cultural and the trade for for many centuries so uh, it is of course not a good idea to say oh i'm i rely too much on china so i kill my own business in china so china from 50% becomes 20% of my business because that just kills your overall business so the way to re, the with this fact in mind the, the way to limit the external shock uh, uh, risk is to know and understand more about this uh, Chinese market and try to turn these numbers, uh, this uh, 470 billion of import and export, uh, 230, into what can uh, European countries do if uh, some problem arises? So what can we do if container costs go up? What happens if we have a shortage of supply in the semiconductor uh, value chain? So these are the questions that we need to address, not to to say, oh, we don't buy from China because we don't have anyone else to buy from. And this is exactly the same thing that we're doing with Russia. We rely on Russia on gas. But the reason why we we rely a lot on Russia is because we have no alternative supplier.
1: Why has there been this talk of over-reliance, especially in the media, in, in, in many media calling for you know this to be uh, corrected, that they don't repeat the mistake with Russia, and they're also calling for correcting the, the so-called trade imbalance, meaning China sells more than China buys. I mean, we had this problem, uh, we had this man problem with uh, the United States when the United States decided, or when former U.S. President Donald Trump decided that trade deficit was a bad thing. Was a failure, and they tried to correct that. And in the end, they they found out, you know, there is a lesson to be learned. Mr. Gross, do you think there is something wrong with the way of seeing trade uh, or numbers in trade, uh, giving it extra political sign, you know, connotations here?
2: Yeah, there is a disconnect between the political discourse. Uh, and actually what's happening to the economy on the ground. Um, Actually, at the political level, I would say in Europe, the uh, bilateral trade balance is not so important because overall Europe has quite a favorable balance of trade. And we know that we run a deficit uh, with China, a deficit with some other countries, but we run very large surpluses, for example, with the United States. And uh, therefore overall trade uh, for Europe is quite balanced. And Europe is quite strong in exporting manufacturing stuff, which China needs and China produces. So on the economy, I, I would say, very little practical difficulties, but the, whatever, the geopoliticians who sit in their armchairs and say, okay, here is a, a big uh, customer and a client. And uh, what happens if we have a political problem with them? Uh, Then we have an economic problem, but that's quite clear. But as I said earlier, de facto, all this talk about disengaging is really just talk at the political level because the economic incentives are and remain
1: One good thing that came out of this meeting between President Xi and uh, Mr. Michel of the European Council, as according to the Chinese readout, is that both sides decide or uh, Mr. Michel said the European side is willing to push together with the Chinese side the process of uh, the uh, bilateral investment uh, treaty that was kind of uh, shelved. So this is a a positive uh, development. And uh, uh, however uh, on the other hand you mentioned you know the, the 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 disconnect between the economic talks and the political process but there is also the 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 disconnect between different member states within the european union in october for instance uh, 27 eu members discussed for 3 hours to have a, a china stance but they failed they struggled to come up with a cohesive stance on china what is preventing them from finding the, the, the most practical and, uh, you know, suitable approach for Europe to deal with China? Michele?
4: We are 27 member states, each of us with different uh, economic interests with respect to China. Some rely a lot, like Germany, some sell certain goods, some sell certain others. Uh, the European Union uh, it does a uh, uh, trade policy, so tariffs, uh, quota, Uh, a little bit on the investment, uh, which is a borderline uh, uh, responsibility between member states and the European Union, but uh, really does not do, in a way, a foreign policy in the traditional sense. Uh, And so the the reason why countries do not want to uh, agree on a framework is because uh, it uh, binds them uh, to a... EU-led uh, uh, white paper or recommendation that then they cannot maybe uh, move out or have the flexibility to, to adjust. Uh, for example, the European Union, you know, claims China is a strategic rival. Uh, as a member of, uh, as a former member of Italian government, uh, I would never say something like this. Uh, I, my economy relies on export. One third of our GDP Mm comes from export We would never call our customer a strategic rival.
1: Many thanks to Michele Giraci, Daniel Gross, joining us from Rome, Italy, and Tui Hunjin joining us from Beijing. We'll take a short break and when we come back, we'll look into Washington's microchipped crusade on China and its potential repercussions. Stay with us.
0: Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point.
1: The U.S. has taken a myriad of steps to restrict supplies of advanced computer chips to China, not just from the U.S., but uh, from allied nations as well. U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo said Washington needs to deny China this technology as needed to advance the military. But analysts have pointed out the U.S. is pursuing a technology monopoly and that these policies will raise global chip prices and hurt future technological research. What's the real purpose on the part of Washington? What exactly will be the ripple effects? Are U.S. allies cooperating to help achieve the intended goals? I'm pleased to be joined from Beijing by Zhang Fan, Associate Professor of Beijing Normal University, and from Adelaide, Australia, Simon Lacey, Senior Lecturer of the School of Economics and Public Policy at the University of Adelaide. He is also former Vice President of Huawei Technologies. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Professor Zhang, let me go to you first. Now, in October, the Biden administration imposed the latest series of uh, export controls in this matter. What do you see by now is the real purpose of U.S. policies? And according to what international rules does the U.S. take such actions?
5: In my opinion, this is kind of a a panic reaction to to rectify an earlier mistake Uh, so earlier, they imposed restrictions on exports of advanced chips to China. But instead of uh, sort of crashing the Chinese uh, manufacturers that uses those, chip, those chips, uh, it really um, made a cocoon for the Chinese domestic market to be captured by Chinese chip makers. So those guys are now advancing very quickly. So the uh, their sales goes up by 30% every year. And very recently, there's a memory chip manufacturer whose technology is surpassing the U.S. It's just falling behind South Korea just a little bit. So Apple sort of announced they want to use this Chinese makers' chips, and that really sort of run about in, in Washington. And, and and in their new bill, this particular company is, is very heavily targeted. So you can see this kind of a uh, reactive element in it um so
1: what's the what's the ultimate purpose of the united states is to suffocate china's chip production or chip industry
5: yeah so so the chip industry is going going up really fast uh and and it's becoming a, a real competitor on on the global stage and they they want to uh, they want to just push it back down all again right. so all right professor
1: yeah. Lacey This is not the first of uh, similar measures, if not same measures, but uh, similar measures to achieve the same end, as I understand, and uh, restricted steps actually have been taken since 2018. Has the U.S. so far achieved at least part of its intended goals, or does it envision an eventual effective blockade of China's uh, chip industry or chip sector if it pursues this policy to its full?
3: Yeah, I think um, I, I really wonder whether uh, people in the US have really sat down and thought about, you know, what the long term implications of this all are or what the what sort of the end game of this strategy is. I mean, certainly in the in the shorter term, it's achieved um, some of its objectives. I mean, the the objective of hobbling uh, Huawei um, was certainly achieved to a limited extent on 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 foreign markets and and in the rollout of 5G. Um But really, can you deny China this sort of technology in the long term? And if you deny it in the short term, then obviously won't it just develop that technology on its own in in the long term? So really, I I really wonder what sort of the long, what the end game of this strategy is um, by American strategists.
1: But do you think apparently the US is trying to suffocate China's chip industry and all the related high tech sector?
3: Yeah, I think if you' if you're looking to understand you know why this is happening, it's fairly clear that the US sort of sees itself as as in competition with China across you know multiple fronts, including economic, commercial and military. And this is you know competition um, this is a competition where the, the only rule is really sort of to win. It was actually um, Penny Pritzer, who was Obama's uh, commerce secretary, who said in 2016 that it was imperative that the u.s maintain its leadership in semiconductor technology and trump really sort of doubled down on that so the 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 the, the overriding imperative is to maintain u.s dominance in this core technology
1: wow. professor jang as you just mentioned according to chinese numbers china bought more than 300 billion worth of semiconductors in the first 10 months of this year uh, making chips its largest import meanwhile china's exports of chips grew by 8% compared to last year, and the unit prices of its exports are also increasing, which means Chinese companies are actually benefiting from the rising chip prices as a result of US policy. And China is also speeding up its domestic chip development and sector. Can the US effectively control international trade on chips without
5: hurting its own interests? Uh, no. So so this time, so so. What's happening is that the Chinese chip makers have been making real good progress um on both technology and their and their production of scale uh, they're also they're, they're making so much money they're investing billions and billions of dollars across many, many many um cities in china to boost their production um so so what what the us is doing now is going further upstream uh try to cut off the, the, uh, the equipment that this uh chip makers need to make the chips so it's, it's repeating the same game but Further up the uh, up the supply chain, the the, right. the U.S. vendors themselves said, you, "You you can't be serious. You're playing the same game, giving this market back to Ch- to Chinese competitors."
1: Yeah, one of the things that the U.S. tries to do is to cut off supply of uh, advanced chip making machines, for instance, from Netherlands or elsewhere. Uh, U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, as I said, she said in November, early November, that. I think you will see that Japan and the Netherlands will follow our lead, but the Dutch uh, foreign Trade Minister actually say, actually said the Netherlands will not copy the American measures one to one, and the Dutch company ASML, which is one of the world's leading makers of chip making equipment, said it will continue to ship some um, lithography chip equipment to China. Of course, not the uh, extreme ultraviolet ones. So why are these countries taking a different stand, at least to a, at least slightly distance themselves from the U.S. policy, Mr. Lacey?
3: Yeah, I, I also read the comments of, of the uh, of the Dutch foreign minister. I think it was interesting because the language he used was that the, the definition of the US for using of dual use technologies was not the official one. They sort of expanded the scope to go beyond what was officially recognized as dual use technology. Um, I think the Japanese will will fall in line with with the US position. I think the big question mark is the Koreans, right? So you've got Samsung and SK Hynix that both have manufacturing um, uh, plants in in China. And and Korea sort of does have a a strong history of standing up to the US. at least initially on 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 Huawei as well, um but I think the 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 koreans are 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 very hard-nosed about sort of making those decisions in terms of their own kind of narrow interpretation of what's in their what's in their national interest. So I think that's really the question mark is will will countries follow?
1: hmm Well, countries are obviously under a lot of pressure or regions, you know, including uh, the Taiwan region of China. Um, you just mentioned Japan. Japanese observers have also warned that Japan's domestic chip industry will be scathed if Japan complies. And Australia, uh, the country that you are based in, Australian Trade Minister Don Farah actually said that Australia will use cool and calm foreign policy to limit trade problems early so that, so that maybe we don't have to go to the more Draconian actions that the US has gone down. Professor L- Mr. Lacey, once again, how do you look at these comments? I mean, are countries compelled to comply with US policies despite their own legitimate interests?
3: Yeah, I mean, when you what we saw um, in in the Huawei campaign was that the US um, really just got increasingly sort of shrill in its demands, particularly vis-a-vis the UK, um, to to sort of drop uh, Huawei and really sort of brought a lot of pressure to bear on on other allies. Um, and and that, that succeeded to a certain extent, but I also felt that, um, you know, there was kind of a growing, um, there was growing discomfort with, um, with China, which was sort of also accelerated by um, the initial uh, uncertainty around, around, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic. I think, I think countries have sort of recalibrated their stand towards China um, since since sort of the, the end of the 2010s, and people are just a lot more, I mean, governments are a lot more um, wary of China. But I, I just think um, we'll have to wait and see how it plays out and on and how successful the, the US is really on convincing allies. I mean, the, the comments of Trade Minister Farrell, I think, are best sort of understood in, in the context of, uh, you know, a desire by the Australian government to really no longer sort of stoke the fires of confrontation between Australia and China, and 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 lead to a sort of more uh, to a calmer relationship and a, and a more um, sort of productive uh, relationship, one that's less driven by conflict.
1: Yeah, Professor Zhang, do you think the US worry that uh, you know the so-called dual-use technology? Will give China the kind of upper hand in um, doing bad things in the world. Do you think that kind of argument is uh, well ground is grounded in facts and is uh, can serve as a basis for you know restricting international trade that are legitimate that are uh, actually you know protected by international rules on trade?
5: Uh, no, I mean they find all sorts of excuses for for for. Trying to to hold on to their technological monopoly. Um, so in the 80s, you know, they did they did even more drastic things uh, against Japan, um, uh, their own ally, and and slapped some anti-dumping thing, forced Japan to to voluntarily forego exporting their their semiconductors. That's uh, that's when the uh, the US came back up. So with China, you know, it's 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 all about competition, so it's military stuff, but China hasn't been involved in any war for so long, I mean, uh, and do you use it, if you compare it to American, uh, you know, military con- contractors uh, role in their in their economy and uh, uh, Chinese due use it is non existence, in any case, that's not a, not an excuse. To if, if that's the excuse, something can be used for military purpose. Then you sh- you need to go and kill everybody, all the kids in the world, because they can become soldiers, that fight American soldiers one day, right? So that that, that that's logically it it doesn't it doesn't follow. Uh, and rule wise, the their action against Japan was was ruled to be against the WTO rules uh, later on, and then now they are. They have this long arm jurisdiction they're not only restricting American companies, they're restricting American nationals that currently um, work for other companies. So there's a huge evacuation of Americans out of Chinese factories right now. Never mind, you know, contractual obligations. It's, it's all of a sudden everything's just out of the window. Uh, your property is no, no longer your property. Uh, you know, contract doesn't mean anything. It's just weird now.
1: Many thanks to Professor Zhang Fan and Simon Lacey joining us for the discussion. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Li As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Li in Beijing. You've got The Point.